Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. For it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be any uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray them. So we're back in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, it's good to be back in the Gospel of Mark, right? Uh, we've been away from the Gospel of Mark for a couple of months now, so I'll begin with sort of like a word of preface, right? Uh, we're, we've been, if you remember, working our way through the Gospel of Mark with a single goal in mind. We've got a single aim, a single purpose in mind as we're reading the Gospel of Mark, which is to lay the assumptions that we all bring to the table about who Jesus is, to lay our assumptions aside, and to take a hard look at the real Jesus. We want to take a hard look at the real Jesus. I think it was John Stott who once said that there's not a single more important belief that we need to settle in our minds than what we believe about Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Mark in particular, is all about giving us the raw and the unadulterated Jesus. This gospel, more than any other, is just action-packed. It's full of emotion and passion. It shows us the Jesus who is truer and better than the Jesus that we found, how he is truer and better than the, the one that we tend to fashion in like our own images. And in Mark chapter 14, the chapter we're in this morning, we find ourselves in the middle of sort of a big turning point. There's a big turning point. Like so far in this gospel, we've seen Jesus displayed as a friend of sinners. We've seen him as somebody who's unembarrassed by lepers and unimpressed by religious leaders. We've seen that he's somebody who has control over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. He makes storms go still and he makes demonic spirits tremble. We've seen that, that he can handle our weaknesses, that he's unshaken and unmoved by our sins, and that he's unashamed to call us his own. And so a big question now for us this morning, a big question for you this morning in light of this Jesus that we've been studying is, how now do you respond to this Jesus how do you respond in your heart with your life to the real Jesus? How do you respond to him? Like if you were to describe your devotion to Jesus this morning with a single word, if you were to describe your devotion to Jesus with a single word, what would that word be? Would it be deep? 
Would your devotion to him be described as deep, as extravagant, as, as costly? Or would it be described as restrained, maybe guarded and careful, compartmentalized? You see, to gain a solid grasp of how we should respond to him, I want us to look at two people in this text who knew Jesus pretty well. Both of these people saw him perform many miracles. Both of them heard him preach about the kingdom of God with authority. Like These two individuals might have even sat next to each other as Jesus taught the disciples. And we're talking about a woman named Mary whose brother Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. Now, in this text, we don't see her name, but in, in other accounts, in Luke and John, we know that her name is Mary, the one who is related to Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. And the second person we're going to look at is a man named Judas. Judas Iscariot, he was a disciple of Jesus, one of the inner 12. He's the man who would eventually betray Jesus. Now, I want you to see three key points that we're going to look at in our text. First, we're going to look at the Judas's costly betrayal. Secondly, we're going to look at Mary's costly devotion. And lastly, we're going to look at Jesus' contrasting response to both of them. So let's look at the first one, the costly betrayal of Judas. Read verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, in chapter 14, verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him, arrest Jesus by stealth, and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So we see here in the beginning of chapter 14 that the plot sort of thickens, right? The plot thickens for Jesus. Here the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus' critics, his haters who have been sort of following him around on his mission, they are at this point on a singular mission to get Jesus arrested. They're on a singular mission to arrest and kill Jesus. And this moment, the betrayal of Jesus is going to be the first domino that sort of leads to his brutal death on the cross in less than a week. This is the last week of Jesus' death. Commentators point out that at this point, uh, Mark sort of slows down in his writing. He sort of slows down in his story. Like from chapter 1 up through thir- verse, uh, chapter 13, we've seen like months and, and weeks and, and moments at a time. But here, from Mark chapter 14 through Mark chapter 16, we see detailed the last week of Jesus' life. And what we see in this particular passage is, you'll notice, uh, verses 1 through 11 is what's called a Markin sandwich. Do you guys remember what that is? We talked about this a few times uh, in in the Gospel of Mark, but a Markin sandwich is basically a literary device that Mark uses uh, to make a special point, all right? And so what Mark does is he, 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 uh, he places one story inside another story in order to illustrate a point. And so in, in this particular uh, mark in sandwich, in verses 1 through 11, we see a story of beauty regarding Mary sandwiched between a story of evil and betrayal regarding Judas. 
So I want us to look at the story of betrayal. We started it in verses 1 and 2, but I want you to skip now to verses 10 and 11 and read the rest of the betrayal story with me. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, he went to the chief priest in order to betray him, in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, when the scribes heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him. From this point on, Judas is looking for a moment to betray Jesus. Now, the betrayal of Jesus is one of the saddest and most appalling events in all of history. Like all throughout the scriptures, we see that one of the most demonic plays of evil is when needless divisions happens between fellow Christians. And this betrayal, the betrayal of Jesus, is like peak division. Judas Iscariot, the man who would betray Jesus, he was an apostle. It says that he was one of the twelve. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He had restrict, unrestricted access to Jesus. He lived with Christ. He traveled with Christ. He was a close companion to Christ and to the other disciples. And yet, in this moment, in verses 10 through 11, we see that he sells Jesus out. He sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver is what the Gospel of John tells us. That's, that's less than what you'd pay for a slave at the time. You see, to, Jesus, to Judas, Jesus was worth nothing more than what society considered the lowliest of people, just a common slave. In other words, Jesus was worth more to Judas dead than alive. Jesus was simply a means to an end for to the to an end for Judas. So, in other words, he was he was always asking like Judas was always asking, what can this relationship with Jesus do for me? Right? That's what this reveals. At every point in Judas's relationship with Jesus, he was asking, what can this relationship with Jesus do for me? And at this point, Judas has decided, you know, this relationship can't do anything for me any longer, and so I'm going to sell Jesus out. You know, in business, they have this thing called a cost-benefit analysis. You guys know what that is? Cost-benefit analysis. It's when you measure out the cost of a project to the value that it will bring when that project is completed, right? So, so you measure out how much is this project going to cost us, and then you measure, if we complete this, the value that that's going to bring it, bring it to us. And if the benefit, the value outweighs the cost, then you green light that, that project. At the Pavletti home, in our home, we call this kind of like budgeting for home projects, right? Like we have a number of unfinished home projects going on. We have drywall that needs to be replaced. We have doors that need to be installed. Our kids need a new bed, right? Because we've got a third now. And like the list just goes on right now of the, the needs that we have in our home. And so Alyssa and I, my wife and I, we have this running sort of like Google sheet where we go over how much each of these projects will cost us. And not only do we go over the cost of each project, but then we, we sort of rate them uh, of how much of a benefit, how much of a value, how much of a priority each one should be. And so when money does come in, we sort of analyze it according to the sheet to see you know, what, what, what projects make the most sense to spend based on their cost and the value it will bring to us. And you know that, that's fine to do with like a home budget and with a business budget. But some of us make that sort of our main sort of operating system when it comes to like our devotion to Jesus. 
You see, few of us will ever actually commit a heinous betrayal against someone the way that Judas did. But we need to see that underneath the surface, inside his heart, his betrayal was the result of a deeper common struggle that like we really all deal with. Judas, he was calculating the worth of Jesus based on the value that he thought he would receive from Jesus. That's what his whole relationship with Jesus was, was about. What kind of value will this bring my life? And he came to this point where he says, you know, Jesus' life would be worth 30 pieces of silver for me. So think about it another way. Think about it this way. Like, what, what, what do you sell at a garage sale? What do you sell at a garage sale? You sell at a garage sale the things that are of, like, no use to you anymore, Right? You go through your, your, your like Marie Kondo, like your, your garage, right? And then you're just like, I don't need this stuff anymore, and so I'm going to sell it at a garage sale or do, donate it. Like you only sell the, what you, you have no use of anymore. And so you sell it so that you can get cash on hand to buy the thing that you really do want at that moment, right? So what does it mean here in this context to sell Jesus? What does it mean for Judas to sell Jesus out? It means that you treat him as the means to get what you really want. You see, the way that we do that is we say, Lord, I'll believe in you if you give me the family that I've always dreamed of. Lord, I'll follow you if you give me the job that I've worked so hard for. Lord, I'll join a church as long as it doesn't interfere with what I want to do on the weekend. Lord, I'll tithe as long as it doesn't keep me from getting everything else that I want to purchase. Lord, I'll participate in walking with you as long as it doesn't cost me my friends, my stuff, or any of the habits that I love. In other words, Lord, I'll follow you insofar I don't have to actually treat you as Lord in the true sense of that word. You see, before we slam Judas, we need to step back and see this tendency in ourselves. Like when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, when it comes to your relationship with Christ, your Christian faith, your church family, are you only in it if it doesn't cost you anything? Are you only willing to participate if it doesn't challenge you? Are you only in it if it gets you what you want? Or are you willing to be in it just to get him? Just to receive him? You see, that sort of like cost-benefit analysis view that, that Judas was operating from, you know what that view cost Judas? It cost him his dignity, and it costed him his life. He would eventually betray Jesus, sell him out, and he would be the one to out Jesus to tell the scribes and the Pharisees where to find Jesus when he was in a private uh, uh, place where, where no riot would ensue. He's the one that led the critics, the ones who wanted to kill Jesus, to him. He got his 30 pieces of silver, and shortly after that moment, Judas just comes overcome with shame. Just loses all dignity. He tries to give the money back, but they don't want anything to do with it. And so he just, he just leaves it, and he, and he goes, and he hangs himself. He loses his dignity and his life over this. He thought he was selling Jesus out, but he ended up selling his own soul. And so I want us to look now to contrast that with Mary's costly devotion. Mary's costly devotion. You see, Judas' betrayal cost him something. It cost him everything. 
Mary's devotion cost her everything in some sense, but she gained her life. She gained Jesus in the process. You see, in the middle of Judas's act of betrayal, we have this story of Mary's act of beauty. While Judas was calculating how much Jesus was worth to him, this woman, Mary, gives all that she's worth to Jesus. That was her costly devotion. I want you to start reading about it in verse 3. It says, while he, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, this woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. Now you're probably like, what, like, is that okay to do, right? Like if somebody walked into your party and poured ointment on your head, my educated guess is that you would not be cool with that, right? Like there's, there's a bit of a culture gap here that we, we need to understand that's going on here. You see, what Mary did in this verse wasn't like all too strange or weird back then. Like anointing the guest of honor with like oil or an ointment was a common thing to do. The only uncommon part of this story, the only scandalous part of this story was the pricelessness, the extravagance, the personal cost to Mary that her anointing was. Her devotion to him was. You see, it says the woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask. Now, you need to understand that every woman back then, they carried around this sort of flask around, usually around their neck, right? They didn't, they didn't carry necklaces back then the way that, that women do today. They carried, like, most of them carried flasks of perfume that just sort of hung on their neck. You got to understand that, like, a woman's identity was hugely tied to the contents of that alabaster flask. I cannot say that word, alabaster flask. You got to understand that, 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 that this, this, this day uh, and age was like before, before every, people took like daily showers, right? This was the days before AC in your car or in your home. So every wife back then asked her husband before they left the home, not one, but two questions before leaving the home on a date. It wasn't just, how do I look in this outfit? They also asked, like, how do I smell in my armpits, right? Like, a woman's perfume, her alabaster flask that she carried around her neck was tied to her sense of worth, her sense of beauty. And we're told here that the perfume was an ointment form. It was, a, it was pure nard. And nard came from Nepal, which is a far ways away from where they're at. So this is rare. This is expensive perfume. In verse 5, we find out that it's worth 300 denarii, which is the equivalent of about $30,000 today. That's a lot of money. $30,000 perfume in a flask that she broke over the head of Jesus. Right? Like, I could pay off my student loans with that much money and take care of our house projects. We have reason to believe that Mary wasn't wealthy. She wasn't wealthy, so this likely represented her financial security, her life savings, her hopes, her dreams, her longings. This was probably like an heirloom for her. She'd feel the impact of this decision for a long time. And yet, without giving it a second thought, she pours it all out on top of Jesus' head. 
And so the people, the witnesses, the disciples, they respond predictably with just disgust. You can imagine them just, just looking at this happen and being like, what is she doing? Right? Like, like read their response in verse 4. It says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They scolded Mary. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, everyone watching is doing this sort of cost-benefit analysis. And in their eyes, they thought what she was doing was wasteful. They said, there's got to be better things to spend that on than just pouring it on Jesus' head. But Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Man, can you imagine hearing those words from your maker, from your savior? You have done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus clarifies in verse 7. He says, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. You see, it's not that he doesn't care about the needs of the poor. We know that that's obvious. Because in elsewhere, he, 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 he criticizes his disciples for not caring about the poor enough, for not giving the poor food, and for not clothing the poor's back. So it's not that he doesn't care about the needs of the poor. It's that in this particular moment, he's saying, look, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to show godly Christian charity. But the earthly life of Jesus, this was about to come to an end. This was the central moment of history. The time God came down in human flesh. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came down in human flesh for this moment to come to the cross at the end of this week. This was the central moment in history. And in this moment, Mary understood what the rest of the guys did not. She saw the unique beauty of Jesus, that he is something worth giving all to, something worth living for. And her act of devotion, her act of extravagant worship was just an overflow of the beauty that Jesus was to her. You see, that's what the gospel does to us. That's what the gospel does. It changes us. It changes the way that we view the world. It changes the way that we view everything. The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of Jesus' glory, in the light of his grace. Mary didn't care about gaining 30 coins of silver the way that Judas did. She wanted to give that to Jesus a thousand times over. She gave all that she had, the contents of her alabaster flask. Extravagant response, a costly response. You see, we need to receive a lesson in this passage from Mary. We need to receive a lesson from Mary. This woman demonstrates to the church what it means to love Jesus above all. She displays for us what it means to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's recorded here in the Gospel of Mark for us, not just to admire her, but so that we could emulate her. 
You see, we need to ask ourselves, is there a lid on the alabaster flask of our devotion? Is there a lid on the flask of our devotion? Or are we willing to be like, like this woman, to break the bottle of our pride, to submit our personal desires to him, to pour out our lives in love and devotion and adoration and worship and praise because he's worthy. Because he's worthy of it. Is your devotion to Jesus such that others could actually accuse you of being too extravagant? I had to wrestle with that question this week. Like, am I more like Judas the betrayer? Am I like the disciples who are calculating themselves like with caution? Or am I like the woman to say, I'm going to give my all to him and I'm not going to care what others think? Like if Jesus walked into our gathering this morning, if Jesus walked in this room this morning, who would be the ones who just like don't care about your image, don't care about your position, don't care about your reputation. You're not self-conscious in that moment. You're just completely God-conscious that you just want to fall at his feet and worship, give what's most valuable to you to, to, to him, not just materially, but spiritually and emotionally, just spilling yourself out for him. Is your life marked with such devotion to Jesus that those who know you in your life who don't, who don't know him just they might, might think you might be wasting your time, wasting your, your money, wasting your energy on him? You see, extravagant spiritual devotion like this woman Mary sometimes leads to criticism, sometimes leads to questions, but always leads to Jesus calling it beautiful. Just imagine hearing those words from Jesus. You have done a beautiful thing to me. And be encouraged that when you do express devotion to him, when you do express devotion to him in this way, he notices. He notices. He noticed Mary. And he calls it beautiful. You see, it also shows itself, extravagant devotion to Jesus also shows itself in the ordinary, normal, mundane stuff of life, in the little things. You see, extravagant devotion doesn't always come from extravagant acts. We can even show extravagant devotion from just our, our normal, everyday faithfulness in the regular stuff of life. And so to like the mothers who deal with small children, doing their best to discipline them and disciple them and teach them and raise them in the Lord, hear the voice of Jesus. You have done a beautiful thing to me. To the fathers and your laboring and leading your families and praying for them, hear the words of Jesus. You have done a beautiful thing to me. The single young adult who, who says no to the cultural pressures and, and views about, about, about sex in the world, hear the words of Jesus, you have done in a beautiful thing to me. To the church member who shows up early to set up, to, to tear down, to serve, to, to care for our kids in, in, the, in, the, in the kids' ministry and to disciple them. 
who, who prays for your fellow church members to, and serves them, hear the words of Jesus, you have done a beautiful thing to me. You see, our extravagant hearts of devotion don't always have to manifest themselves in extravagant acts, in public acts. It's mostly, usually, in daily acts of faithfulness. So I want us to see now how Jesus' contrasting response to both of them. Jesus responds differently. He receives differently the costly devotion of Mary and the costly betrayal of Judas. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 talks to us about Mary. It says, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, what this woman has done, will be told in memory of her. So here's the fun part. Jesus is prophesying here. He's prophesying here, and that prophecy is coming true in this sermon. Right? Like he's glancing into the future and saying that when the gospel, when the word of God is preached throughout the world and through the ages to the end of time, this woman will be remembered. Why? Because she personified the transforming effects of the gospel. She's a picture-perfect display of extravagant devotion to Jesus. This lowly woman, not any of these privileged men, this lowly woman, who wasn't even part of the inner 12 of disciples, but was a disciple nonetheless, she is the only one promised in all the New Testament that she would be memorialized in this way. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says, Jesus recommended this piece of, he calls it, heroic piety to the applause of the church in all ages. Wherever this gospel shall be preached, it shall be spoken of for memorial of her. You see here, this morning, Jesus' prophetic uttering is being fulfilled. Here in Rancho Santa Margarita in 2019, where the gospel is proclaimed at King's Cross Church, this woman is being remembered. Jesus called it because he wants us to emulate her. Emulate her. Now, why do you think Mary's story of beauty is sandwiched in the middle of Judas's story of betrayal? It's because Mark wants us to see the stark contrast between the two. That's why he makes this Mark and sandwich. He wants us to see that for Mary, the worth of Jesus was immeasurable. But for Judas, 30 pieces of silver will do. Mary humbly bowed down to serve Jesus. Judas proudly rose up to sell him. Mary asked what she might give to express her devotion to Jesus. Judas asked what he might get in exchange for Jesus. Mary spilled out costly perfume for Jesus. Jesus himself spilled out his priceless blood for her. For her. You see, Judas, Judas gets an entirely different response from Jesus. We see it in, down in verse 21. 
which is in our text for next week, but I want you to read it right now. In verse 21, it says, Jesus says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of God is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, Mary, Jesus promises, will be remembered for eternity. Judas himself will suffer for eternity. What about you? Are you you like Judas, only using Jesus to get what you want? Are you like the disciples, over-calculating? Is your devotion to Jesus cautious? Is it selfish? Is it calculated? Or are you like this woman, Mary, simply falling before Jesus, giving him your all as an outpouring of love to the one who is worthy? I love the way John Piper puts it. He says, it is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. It is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. This is why Jesus says to this woman, what you've done is beautiful to me. What is the value of his perfections? What is the value of Jesus' perfections? You see, Jesus reveals in verse 8 that Mary's perfume is in some sense preparing him, anointing him for the stench of death that he'll soon take on. You see, remember this whole scene happens during Passover season. Passover scene, when God's people gathered and rushed into Jerusalem to remember when God saved Israel from slavery. Jesus is now riding into Jerusalem to save sinners, not just from physical slavery, but spiritual slavery, to save sinners from God's wrath. In all of this, in this whole scene, we're learning that Jesus is a Savior unlike any other. In the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that Jesus is a Savior unlike any other. He's not just the one who wields power over sin and death. He's going to soon absorb its power and its penalty. He's going to defeat it on the cross where he'll stand in our place to offer us grace. He is a king unlike any other king, a king who will lay down his life for his enemies. For sinners like you and like me. What is the cost of devotion to a king like this? What is the cost of devotion to a king like this? Everything. Everything. The good news is that Jesus paid that price. Jesus paid the cost. So when we worship him lavishly, when we devote ourselves to him extravagantly, we do it now not because we have to, but because we are freed to. We get to love him in ways that say, that make him say, you have done a beautiful thing to me. Don't we long to hear that? You have done a beautiful thing to me. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. 
we'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.